Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll focus on the latest economic projections from the Federal Reserve Board, how they've changed, and what the reaction has been. <clears throat> for a meeting without a rate change, this was uh, the, the, the meeting that was uh, concluded on December 13th, certainly got a lot of attention, particularly with the suggestion that the Federal Reserve might start lowering rates in 2024. So to guide us through uh, the economic news, our guest this week is Robert Carroll. He's co-leader of EY's Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group, known as Quest. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson joined the conversation. The Fed, the Fed held interest rates at their last meeting, and yet all of the news reports described the meeting as a pivot. Big headlines, Fed, Fed pivot. So what do, what do they mean by that? Yeah, that, that, that's a great. Well, first of all, thanks so much for uh, the invitation. Thanks so much, uh, to you and the Concord Coalition and the audience uh, for inviting me on today. It's a real pleasure to be back again. Um, you know, turning to the uh, Federal, Reserve, Federal Reserve Board meeting um, uh, last week, you know, the, the reporting is that it's kind of describing it as a, as a pivot. And I think the, the, the reason they're describing it as a pivot is prior to last week's meeting, the conversation was more about um, you know, do, do, you know more about um, do we have inflation under control? Um, how long will the Fed um, uh, hold interest rates? Will they need to go higher? There wasn't a lot of attention on on lowering rates, at least kind of in the the Federal Reserve uh, conversations. And at the at the meeting last week, uh, the so-called dot plot, which uh, indicates what um, the voting members of the FOMC think will will happen to interest rates going forward. They indicated in the dot plot that over the next uh, year, between let's say now and next December, they anticipate um, three um, 25 uh, basis point reductions in their federal funds target rate. So they were very clear in, in thinking that rates will go down. They'll go down by about 75 basis points. That will happen over, over the between now and December of 2024, and so that kind of um, kind of has I think led to the pivot from rather than holding now we're we're kind of looking at rates going down. Then I would say that um, when rates will start going down um, is a, is a really big question. Um, I think um, after some of the reporting, some of the uh, some of the the members of the FOMC, um, the Federal Reserve Board. Um, I, I think they tried to pull back or couch or qualify um, some of the thinking around the reporting uh, from the Fed meeting and, and have indicated since that inflation is still a serious problem and they will uh, be very attuned to that. And one shouldn't think that they will aggressively low, lower rates. The reason that's, that's important is uh, the 75 basis point reduction in the dot plot that the Fed indicated is, is a little bit at odds with market expectations. 
the market expectations seem to suggest not three, but six 25 basis point reductions between now and December 24, 150 basis point reduction, a much more aggressive reduction in rates. Market expectations or are for the Federal Reserve or the FOMC to hold rates where they are at their January meeting and then begin to lower them in March and, and then cascade down um, by the 150 basis points between March and December. And I, I think the uh, the Fed, you know, didn't want was trying to kind of reset expectations a, a little bit. That 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 view, that more aggressive view, is is probably is one end of a bookend, and the dot plot is probably the other end of the bookend. All conditional on on uh, where how inflation continues to evolve. That's a that's kind of always point one, two, and three. Yeah, so it's very very interesting. I saw that. I mean, I think that. Uh divergence between the uh, the Fed's projections and the market's uh, projections is, I mean, that's not, I mean, it's like double. Uh, uh, the, it is the, double, actually. So, I mean, it it's, not like, yes, yeah, exactly. it's not like a minor disagreement. I mean, what a, is that just like wishful thinking on the market's parts? <laughs> uh, you know, there's been kind of, um, yeah, disconnect might be too strong a word, but there's been a difference in market expectations and the Fed's posture over the last, you know, year or so, year and a half, it's much more, I think, more more pronounced now than it has been. Um, and, uh, you know, so so it's uh, it's a little hard to explain. Um, uh, you know, inflation is has come down. It's we had really good news in October. We had pretty good news in, in November. And, uh, you know, we'll see what the next few months hold. There are some reasons to think that Inflation may continue its gradual descent, more likely than not. You know, the, the, then the, the important qualifications are that the core CPI is 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 still a bit elevated relative to um, where one might want it to be. Um, it's high, of course higher than the overall CPI. The core CPI excludes uh, more volatile energy and food price components. The personal consumption expenditure price index, which is a, a different measure, um, which is also the measure that the Fed pays more, uh, pays attention to more closely, tends to suggest somewhat higher inflation than the CPI, particularly in the core. The PCE price index is running around four percent. The Fed's target is two uh, percent. That's where they want to want to get us to. The CPI, the core CPI. Um, actually, was also uh, um, four in, in 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 November, so that that is still elevated, but it's coming down, and so um, the gradual descent is is what they're looking for. Um, not to get into the the, the nitty gritty details, shelter is a significant component that's been kind of uh, supporting a higher CPI, if you will, as the shelter kind of comes out of, of the you know as that kind of works its way through the index out, put some downward pressure on, on, on the indexes going forward. So that's, that's um, kind of a good picture. Yeah, I want to uh, bring our other conquered people into the uh, into discussion here. Uh, as usual, Tori Gorman, our policy director, and uh, Steve Robinson, chief economist, join us for this conversation. And uh, Tori, let me turn yeah, to you. I'm glad, 
Bob, I'm glad you mentioned housing because that's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask about. Uh, you know, inflation, a good chunk of inflation came down really fast at first, but it's sort of like this last mile has been a little bit harder. You mentioned that the Federal Reserve has a, a 2% target, you know, but the PCE, you know, still isn't there. We're, we're still around 4%. You know, housing has been a really stubborn, it's a very significant component of the PCE, um, and it's been very stubborn. What do you think contributes to the stubbornness of the, the the housing component of the CPI and inflation in housing? And do you think this sort of last mile getting from 4% to 2% inflation is going to be really, really hard? And so, you know, Wall Street's expectations of massive rate cuts next year might be fantastic, fantastical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so the, I think that the housing component, its, it's contribution to the rise in the CPI has been significant. The reduction uh, in the last couple of months, it's a lot of it's related to energy prices, maybe to a lesser, lesser extent food. That that explains the overall. It doesn't explain the core. Uh, there's some technical reasons why the housing housing services seems to affect the, the CPI kind of with a lag. So as housing prices come down, or um, you know, or or the price of housing services comes down, let's say rents, then um, that's gonna that's gonna be introduced to the CPI, it's going to affect the CPI uh, with a lag. And so that's uh, has not really kind of uh, shown up yet, but but it's expected to show up. So it's kind of a, a kind of some some you know more technical reasons, I, I think, um, mm-hmm. the way housing um, uh, it, the housing services are calculated and and how that that works its way through the CPI uh, numbers. Um, Housing shortage at all? I mean, I, one of the things I'm real curious about because I, I fall into this bucket right now is is mortgage lock. You know, we managed to lock in a 30 year mortgage at you know two and a half percent. Mortgage rates aren't anywhere near that right now. So you've got a lot of people like me who would ordinarily be moving into either a yeah. larger or, or your you've got your baby boomers that are that should normally be downsizing, but they've got rate lock in their homes and that they can't move to something else uh, because mortgage rates are so high. Do you, do you see that as sort of a big contributor to the housing shortage, which is what's keeping uh, housing? Yeah, prices I, I think that's that's. Ex- I think that's a you know um, that's a very significant factor. The inventories are really low. The inventories are are really low uh, because a lot of people have very low rate mortgages, and uh, moving is is difficult because you're going to trade a low rate mortgage for for a high rate mortgage. And and so the the kind of the housing lock that you mentioned is is a real thing, and it, it's depressing inventories. Um, so it, it may not be for a while uh, until interest rates, mortgage rates, start coming down. They have come down some, um, but they'll probably have to come down a lot more in order to um, for that uh, the 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 lock effect to kind of be mitigated. So that that's I think a very significant factor. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about recent developments with the uh, econ- on the economy with Robert Carroll, co-leader of EY's Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about recent economic developments uh, with uh, Robert Carroll, co-leader of EY's Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group. 
And Tori, you are in the middle of uh, following up on a point uh, uh, about mortgages and uh, interest rates. So why don't you uh, get back to that point? Sure. I was just curious if if we're potentially stuck in a in a vicious cycle here, in that you know high housing prices uh, and mortgage lock are keeping people in their homes and keeping housing prices high. If housing prices are high, then the the inflation isn't falling, the PCE isn't falling, which means the Federal Reserve isn't cutting rates, which means mortgage rates aren't dropping, which feeds back into this whole you know housing shortage crisis all over again. Are we sort of stuck in a vicious cycle, or is there sort of a place to eddy out here? Yeah, so so you know mortgage rates have come down. You know, the Fed sets the federal funds target rate, which is just for you know, short term, very specific short term borrowing. And mortgage rates have started coming down, it, but nevertheless, nevertheless, it is the case that, as we mentioned, inventories are low because of the mortgage lock or housing lock, and and that is a, is a kind of in a sense supporting a higher higher housing prices because uh, you have you know um, uh, but but uh, you know I think over time mortgage rates um, will come down. Uh, they'll probably never come down, uh, not for a long time. Will they come down to the levels we saw beforehand? And this will slowly, uh, you know, uh, unwind. It, it will take some time. Um, I think the Fed, what the Fed will be looking at as it sets the federal funds target rate, is trying to balance the dual goals of price stability and full employment, trying to manage and navigate the economy to its uh, the magical soft landing. Uh, you know, by now a very overused term, but but that is what they're trying to do. Uh, they do seem to have inflation gradually falling. Uh, they've hit a, a level of um, of interest rates with respect to the federal funds target rate that is um, impactful. It is uh, seemingly slowing down the economy somewhat, and, and that's that's probably something to, to talk about. How much is it really slowing down the economy? And and, and there's there is some some loosening in the labor markets, but even, even the labor markets continue to be very very tight. The unemployment rate fell. In, in November uh, from 3.9 to 3.7. Uh, a lot of that had to do with labor force participation rising a, a tad. Importantly, wages uh, are now um, the rise in average hourly earnings are going up about 4%. That's how much they went up in, in November. Um, that's consistent with the, the, the core PCE and the and the core CPI numbers. So one of the concerns I think some economists have had, including the Fed, is that if you have wages rising too fast, um, that that will that is uh, will will drive inflation. Now that wages are not really exceeding the rise in the price level, that's that that's a much the, the kind of the, the the wage price spiral is much less of a, a worry. So that's that's comforting. And we'll have to see. The uh, a lot of forecasts have the unemployment rate uh, rising to around 4.5, 4.7 over the next year, sometime towards the end of 2024, um, and, and suggesting that we'll have a lot more loosening. A lot of the forecasts expect uh, economic growth to slow to the 0.5 to 1% soft landing, no contraction, but slower growth in 2024. Um, consistent with rising un un unemployment. Now, saying once I've said all that, I, I would just point out that uh, a year ago, year and a half ago, two years ago, a lot of economists thought we would have uh, the recession would have started in early 2023. Then that moved to the latter 2023. Um, just a, a month or two ago, a lot of forecasts had the uh, fourth quarter GDP growth at um, 
at uh, you know uh, yeah, around one, let's say one percent, slowing economy in the fourth quarter. Um, the Federal Reserve Board of Atlanta puts out a forecast of um, a GDP called the Nowcast. Their estimate of fourth quarter GDP growth is now two point six percent. That's their December fourteenth forecast. It gets updated every few days as new data comes out. So there, and that that forecast, the GDP now forecast, has been actually pretty reasonably accurate. It's it's not precise, but it's reasonably accurate. It suggests fourth, the fourth quarter is going to be much better than a lot of the forecasts had suggested, and so that's that's a, a factor to 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 consider. Steve, yeah. So you, you were talking about the, the the mixed opinion about whether we will have a recession and how that view has changed. Um, historically, there's been a, a fairly reliable. You know, you, you never want to confuse correlation with causation, but the notion of an inverted yield curve that when when short term rates are higher than long term rates, right. historically that has that has sort of preceded a recession. It became sort of this indicator, a leading indicator, perhaps. So we've actually had an inverted yield curve for over a year now, and uh, most people are assuming that no, in fact, we're not going to have a recession. So what what are your thoughts on why the inverted yield curve historically has been a perhaps indicator and why this time it looks like it's going to miss the mark. What, what are yeah, it, it's really interesting. And and um, the, the, the inverted yield curve has been a very good indicator, highly correlated with recession since the end of World War II, right? It, it's been a very, very good predictor when it's uh, inverted um, for more than a few months. It's, it's uh, you know, it, it has a very high batting average in terms of predict, predicting recessions, very high. It, it might it might be, uh, you know, at 100%, right? It, it might predict all of them. Um, it, and, and we've had an inverted yield curve now, whether you're looking at the, the two to 10 or the two uh, or the three months to 10 year uh, uh, treasury bond, it's it's been inverted for, as you say, for a long time. And so uh, the historical, uh, correlation if you applied it to this experience would suggest that we should already be in recession right and and uh one thing i've learned as soon as somebody says this time it's different you have to take what they're going to say next with a grain of salt but but nevertheless i will say this time it just seems to be different that um the covid recession the coming out of covid the covid recovery the once in a century pandemic the supply chain issues that we significant supply chain issues that we had that are resolved, all the problems that the economy has had in the last couple of years is just really, really different. And then the other thing is, I think the 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 Federal Reserve um, this time it rose rates very, very quickly. It, it increased rates very, very quickly um, at the fastest pace since the the early '80s. But it, it raised them from uh, a very, very low rates, right? The, the federal funds target rate was basically zero. We had negative real interest rates, and um, they didn't over, um, you know, you know they, they didn't overcompensate, it, it appears. And so the ability of the Fed to engineer soft landing seems more likely this time than it has in the past. You know, um, the fat lady hasn't sung yet. So, so we, we, <laughs> We don't know, um, you know, what what the next year will hold. You know, is there a big difference between growth that's just above zero and growth that's just below zero? Um, if you're working, you know, uh, at a small business and uh, you know, and and you're worried about um, having enough revenue to meet costs and, and so on, having a, 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 the business to be viable, there may not be a big difference between 
growth at 0.5 versus growth at, at minus 0.5 the, in terms of the impact on the people who work for that business. But nevertheless, I think it's more likely than not, it, you know, based on the forecast, based on, on all the reporting, based on the data, it seems it's more likely than not that um, we're going to have a soft landing. But it doesn't mean that we're going to have a rosy picture. It means uh, that could mean that growth will slow, and um, but, but the economy will not contract. So you're talking about things that are different. I mean, uh, normally we focus on interest rates. The Fed policy is sort of defined in terms of you know what it's doing to affect the Fed funds rate. But one thing that has really changed in, in the last you know decade and a half is the Fed balance sheet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was yep. If if you look at you know the the financial crisis, we were prior to the financial crisis in 2008. The Fed balance sheet was about a trillion. It went up to four trillion, and then. Right. Uh, during COVID, it went up almost to nine trillion. Exactly. Right now, it's slowly coming down. I think it's just below eight trillion now. But yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, how has the rise and fall uh, of the Fed balance sheet either enhanced or, or perhaps made it more difficult to to for the Fed to do its job on the interest rate side? What what what's your thinking there? Well, it, it's it's in effect one of the tools they use. You know, to um, they put a lot more money in the economy. If you had quantitative easing after the, you know, uh, during and after the global financial crisis, you know, to add liquidity and, and so on, support the economy. You had that to, as you point out, you had that to a much greater extent now than we did then. They're pulling the balance sheet down. I think it's ninety-five billion a month. It's happening slowly. They're being very. The Fed has been very clear. And, and indicating exactly what they're doing on the balance sheet. So there's like no mystery. They're being very transparent. And that will slowly um, uh, reduce liquidity, right? They, they need to get it low enough so that if there's another crisis, they have room to do something. When we had the, uh, the couple of bank failures early in 2023, uh, you may recall that, you know, they, they kind of reverse, they were pulling the quantitative easing down and they reverse that for uh, a month or two, and you see that in the in the balance sheet numbers. And so they they need to pull it down in sense so they have have room to maneuver. You know, when when we have the next, whenever the next crisis is is, we don't know when it will be. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about recent developments in the economy with Robert Carroll, co-leader of EY's Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson and I are talking about recent developments in the economy with Bob Carroll. He's the co-leader of EY's Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group. And uh, he also, I should mention, uh, served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Tax Analysis at the U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, so Bob has quite a background in uh, analyzing tax matters and the economy. Uh, I wanted to talk about risk in this segment. Not that, uh, I mean, we, <laughs> we perhaps always talk about risk on this show, but, but we talk about risk to the economy because everything is looking pretty good right now with the uh, projected soft landing. And so I wanted to ask about two things. One is we live in a global economy, and are there any risks that you see 
to the U.S. economy from the rest of the world. And the other one is internal risks. Something that we talk about a lot in this program is, is the demographic factors that may impede future economic growth. So in whatever order you want to take those, I just wanted to get your, um, your take on those. Yeah. So, yeah, kind of risks um, from a, a more global perspective, there's always kind of going to be, a, let's say, geopolitical risks. And, um, you know, we have the situation um, in, in Ukraine. We have the situation in, in the Middle East with respect to Israel and, and the Gaza, Gaza Strip. If, you know, so th those are, you know, potential risks. The U Ukraine, uh, Russia's um, uh, invasion of Ukraine, uh, you know, certainly impactful in in the EU, maybe less impactful than was initially thought it would be. Um, there, the uh, there were a lot of concern around energy sh shortages last year. Um, the countries involved were able to um, address um, were very proactive in building out capacity for natural gas and and, and so on and so forth. So so that and, and it was a milder winter, so it, it didn't turn out to. You know, it didn't turn out to have, be as impactful as people thought it would be. Nevertheless, you know, it's a risk. The other area where there's a potential risk is we have the, you know, the United States is the world's largest economy. It's you know roughly uh, let's say 25 percent of world GDP. Um, the second largest economy is China, and China is facing significant challenges. And um, as has been as has been widely reported, it has a kind of a significant debt issue, uh, particularly in the in the real estate sector. And so that's a concern. They have um, a weak uh, consumer spending, which, which is a concern. And then they have a problem that they share with a lot of other countries is uh, they have a demographic problem that um, the, uh, the, they have a, the aging of their population. And um, that's, that's, Will has uh, will uh, uh, begin to uh, be a drag on economic growth. Long-term economic growth is is usually thought to be tied to two things: productivity growth, uh, you know, the growth in the working age population. And a lot of people use the growth in population as a shorthand for the working age population. But it's that working age population that matters. And when you have a, a, a society that's aging as South Korea does, as Japan does, as Germany does, as China does, and also the United States. Um, but they're they're on the front front edge of this more so than than we are. And that will begin to become a drag on 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 their their growth prospects longer term going forward. That's a long term issue. Um, the one China policy was a contributor uh, to, to their problems. The U.S. has kind of a safety valve uh, built in, always has. We had tend to have a lot of immigration of one sort or another, let's say, and that um, contributes to population growth. Nevertheless, we do have an aging aging population. Um, you know, I recall in the early 2000s, the Congressional Budget Office, in their forecast of economic growth long term, thought the economy would grow at around 3% a year. That was kind of the the normal growth rate, steady state growth rate for the U.S. economy. I was thinking it was 10 or 12 years ago, they lowered that. They gradually low lowered that uh, over a couple of years to about 2%, 1.9%, And the explanation, primary explanation for why that was lowered, there are two explanations, but a primary one is the aging of the U.S. population. As the U.S. population ages and more, you know, we have a higher fraction of retirement, 
a smaller fraction working that that will uh, bring down the long-term growth rate of of the economy that's a, that's a concern the other thing which is also a risk which you didn't ask about but i know the concord coalition uh has never uh, always loves to talk about and and uh, it would it, it would be um it'd be unfortunate not to mention it um is the long-term fiscal imbalance and and that would be the other reason is uh, as the debt held by the public uh, federal federal government debt held by the public increases over time, uh, particularly now in a higher interest rate environment. Interest costs to the federal government go up, and that crowds out private investment. Uh, crowding out private investment reduces the productive capacity of, of the overall economy and is a drag on growth. And is another reason uh, CBO has lowered its long term growth projections from the three to two percent range, and, and, and so that's a, that's a big issue. Thank you for raising the debt issue because we do, we do talk about it quite a bit. Uh, Tori, let me uh, go back to you for a question. Sure. I'd like to talk about the labor market for a little bit. Um, I've got a daughter who's graduating from college in next spring. Uh, real curious to see what kind of prospects uh, she's looking at. I know that there's been uh, one of the unusual uh, traits of the, the the labor market in the last couple of months has been a big jump in labor productivity. You know, for a while, uh, I know many economists were worried about the lack of of, of growing productivity, labor productivity in the labor markets, and uh, what that would do for growth. And and now we've just seen this big big jump in the last two quarters. Uh, the last one in particular, third quarter, uh, was revised up from four point seven to five point two percent. You know, holy cow! Um, so what what is your outlook for the, the the labor market, and and specifically, what does labor productivity do? in terms of the outlook for jobs. And I know you said earlier, you know, a, a more productive workforce means greater opportunities for growth, but then if everybody's being super, super productive, maybe companies, you know, don't need as many people to do to do the work. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about the, the labor market and what's happening yeah, with productivity yeah. and the outlook for jobs. A great, a great question. And, and, you know, I haven't looked at the last, the numbers for the last quarter, um, but I looked at the numbers Productivity numbers prior to that over the last you know couple of year last couple of years since COVID, and and as we came out of COVID, the productivity numbers tanked, and and they're very very low, um, and uh, that was a concern. Uh, then you know two quarters ago they they came back. I guess last quarter they came back because they they also rebounded. And my sense is that you know if you look at the trend, it's kind of returned to trend. And so I don't know that there's a big concern that. Your productivity, when you look at it relative to trend, is kind of where it probably ought to be. Uh, the broader question that you raise is, is a great question. Uh, um, you know, is is higher productivity good or bad, if you will, or is too much if productivity grows too quickly? Is, is that unhealthy for the economy? And I suppose one could say that if you have a very rapid rise in productivity, it might it might create some dissonance in labor markets. And, but but I would take a step back and say probably the rise in, in living standards uh, is probably more closely tied to technological change and productivity growth than, than anything else. And so the idea that we want the next generation to be better off than the current generation is, is probably tied to technology and technological change and productivity growth more than anything else. And um so I, I would say, uh, you know, when you take a step back, it's probably a good thing. You know, we don't have a lot of telephone operators anymore. We don't use wooden plows. People have to retool. That's not to say uh, that as a dynamic economy, 
um, which requires where there's constant change, right? We've all learned that change is a constant thing, um, but, but change can be hard and uh, disruption can be hard. Um, uh, and does it does cause people to perhaps retool, to be very flexible and adapt to the changing work environment and, and uh, you know, state the obvious, the, the, the pace of change, rate of change is much faster now than it was 10 years ago, much faster now than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. The, it's accelerating at a, at a rapid rate. Uh, AI is going to be a significant contributor to that rate of acceleration. We, we don't know um, what the future will, will behold. Yeah, it, it, hopefully it's an it's a, a opportunity um, and, and will contribute to um, you know, a faster rise in living standards, which is generally good for everyone. Well, let me just uh, say that this is not artificial intelligence on this program. We are all real. And <laughs> we're listening, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been talking about recent develops and, uh, developments in the economy with Bob Carroll. He is the co-leader of EY's Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group. And uh, Bob, we know you've got to go, but we really thank you for uh, spending some time with us this morning. Tori and Steve and I will be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are, uh, are now going to talk about Social Security reform, or at least one element of Social Security reform. Steve, you've been uh, looking at one popular uh, item of reform, which is raising the threshold, the maximum amount of uh, income that is taxed for purposes of Social Security. People always say, well, why don't we raise that? Why don't we either eliminate the cap or raise the cap? Uh, and that will bring in more money. So let me just turn to you now uh, for the a little bit more of a description of what the situation is and, and what the options would be in terms of ra what, what would you accomplish by raising that maximum cap? Yeah, so it, what you accomplish is not always exactly what people expect to accomplish. Um, in, in this case, that's particularly true. So, you know, to, to take you back just a little bit, when they created Social Security back in the 1930s, 1935, President Roosevelt had a, what they called the Committee on Economic Security, and it was a group of cabinet-level officials who essentially designed the Social Security reform or the Social Security system with, with the help of some you know, outside experts, economists, actuaries. And the idea at the time was that they would cover sort of average workers and, and they would earn benefits for, for retirement. But they decided, well, you know, there's some room here for the private sector. And so what we're going to do is if you make more than $3,000 a year, then we're just going to exclude you. You you don't participate in the system. You you're you make enough money. You can take care of yourself. Now three thousand dollars doesn't sound like very much today, but back in 1935, the the you know the average wage was just a little over a thousand dollars. So three thousand dollars was like two two point seven times the average wage. So you know that would be you know something close to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or so today. So it was you know a fair sum, but they decided well you know. 
how are we, how's this going to work? Because if people work part-time or they work multiple jobs, their income goes up from one year to the next. So you're going to have people dropping in and out of coverage. They, you know, they may have coverage for part of the year. They may not have coverage from one year to the next. So they say, well, well okay, we'll simplify this and we'll only tax workers up to $3,000 in wages, but we're going to cover everybody. But if you make more than the 3,000, we just won't tax you on those wages above that amount. Now, the other thing that's important to remember is that the cap, this taxable maximum, applies not only to how much wages that you pay taxes on, it also applies to how much wages go into your benefit calculation. So it's actually more correct to call it the the contribution and benefit base, because it is the base of wages to which the taxes apply and the benefit formula applies. So to, to give you an example, today, this $3,000 back in the 1930s, we've increased it over time and it's now indexed, so it goes up every year. Um, the current cap is $160,000. So if you had a hypothetical worker who earned the maximum throughout his career, he would pay a, a tax on those wages, but then when it came time to calculate his benefit, there is a cap on the benefit as well. So essentially this $160,000 in, in maximum wages would produce a benefit of, of roughly $44,000. So that would be the most you could collect from social security. There's a cap on the, the tax, a cap on the benefit. And so what, are people, what a lot of people say is, well, let's just take the cap off but if you did that and didn't change anything else, you would have a situation where let's suppose, you know, you had somebody who made a million dollars a year instead, instead of 160,000, they made a million on average over their lifetime. Well, instead of a $44,000 benefit, they would have a $171,000 benefit. <laughs> so you would be paying fairly large, substantial benefits. And as a political matter, you know, you end up with this interesting dynamic where yes, you take the cap off and you raise a lot of money, but if you don't decouple the tax with the benefit, you would also pay a lot more benefits. In fact, you know, if you look at, at the, the estimates, both the Congressional Budget Office and the Social Security Administration have estimated um, that for every dollar of additional taxes that you would collect, you would end up paying somewhere between uh, 40 and 60 cents in additional benefits. So most of that tax revenue would ultimately go to paying higher benefits. And so, you know, the net effect would be you've improved the system, yes, but you've not balanced the system in any way because you've got more money coming in, but you also now have more money going out. And yeah. if you you bring it in, it, it doesn't really improve the cash balance uh, for very long. I mean, you're, you're bringing in new money now, but it, I think you still go cash negative within seven or eight years. Right. Well, actually, I mean... If you had done this policy some years ago when we did have a small surplus, this would have made the surplus much larger and it would have maintained the surplus for a few additional years. But yeah, I mean, we're now at the point where taking the cap off by itself, you're still almost in an immediate negative cash flow. Now, it reduces the deficits, but it doesn't eliminate them. And certainly in the long run, it doesn't. Now, of course, the other argument as well you don't have to pay the extra benefits. What if you just take the cap off and tax the wages, but you keep the cap for purposes of benefit calculations? And often what people say is, well, if you remember back in 1994, there used to be a cap on the Medicare tax and the Medicare tax and the Social Security tax were applied to the same wage base. And in 1994, we did away with that. Congress voted and essentially took the cap off of Medicare so that your Medicare tax is now unlimited. 
And the argument is, well, if, if it's good enough for Medicare, it should be good enough for Social Security. Uh, there's a couple of a couple of problems with that argument that people need to sort of think about, though. The Medicare taxes is the combined employee employer taxes, 2.9 percent, so less than 3 percent. The Social Security tax, on the other hand, is 12.4. So you're basically talking about four times as much. So it's one thing to tax workers an additional 3%. But if you tax workers an additional 12%, you end up with some really high tax rates. So I mean, if you, if you do, for example, a self-employed worker pays both shares of the tax, he pays the employee side and the employer side because he works for himself. So you could have a state like California with a high income tax, and you throw in the federal income tax, the Medicare tax, the Social Security tax, and the state uh, and local income tax, and you could end up with a self-employed worker facing marginal tax rates of 65%. So, you know, it, it sort of gives you pause to think, okay, well, it's simple to just take the cap off, but the effect of that would be fairly substantial. And in some states, particularly like California, you could have, you know, almost prohibitive marginal tax rates, which is, which is also one of the interesting things is if you think about uh, the revenue, well, yes, we would collect more payroll taxes by taking the cap off. But these workers who are now subject to these additional taxes, it's generally, well, for a self-employed worker, he gets to deduct those additional payroll taxes from his income taxes. And normal workers, the employer pays the payroll tax, but most economists will agree that the employer's share of the payroll tax uh, is ultimately paid by the worker in the form of lower wages. So if you assume that the economy adjusts to, the, to, to removing the cap, what would have been, say, in 2023, if you took the cap off, you would get $260 billion. But when you have an adjustment for the income tax and an adjustment for wages uh, to, to, to cover the employer's share of the tax, you lose about $60 billion of that, of that amount. So you end up with, you know, and that's a very conservative estimate. It assumes no one does other things to change their, you know, the incentives in terms of, of fringe benefits that are not subject to the tax or working less or having a high, having a bigger incentive to, to, to not report all of their income. So clearly, you know, what would be a boom to Social Security revenue could have a substantially negative effect on the rest of the budget uh, because it would reduce federal income taxes. So I'm going to throw some spaghetti on the wall. I have not fully thought out this idea, but listening to you speak, I sort of had a thought. The, the way the, the FICA tax applies right now, it's to wage and salary income. So if you have a W-2 job, you know, where you're working for somebody else and they're, they're sending you a paycheck, you pay FICA taxes on it. You know, but if you're, you know, independently wealthy or if you earn your income from passive investments, you know, you're not paying FICA tax. You had mentioned one of the, the 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 conundrums about raising the the taxable maximum is that yeah fine you might be getting more in social security revenues but you're losing out in, in an even bigger way on income taxes well capital gains taxes the the long term capital gains are much lower than in, income taxes so is there a way to raise more money for social security by imposing fica taxes on capital gains income without generating the the income tax loss that you see from just ordinary income loss from you know income that's taxed at a higher marginal rate 
Yeah, I mean, clearly you could apply the payroll tax to all income, but I mean, I think the the academic research suggests that what's called the elasticity of taxable income, and that is that how do people respond to these higher taxes? And the general assumption is that wages and salaries are less elastic, meaning that people have less ability to hide or, or change their wages and salaries. Whereas if you're taxing capital gains, people can simply refuse to realize the gain or, you know, they can find some other way of, of, of changing their behavior and changing their, their, their business practice. So I, and I think the assumption is that other non-wage income is actually more responsive. So when you raise taxes there, you're going to have a, a bigger, you know, op- revenue offset to, to the tax increase. You'd still get additional money. You just get a lot less than you would have assumed. We're going to have to leave that interesting uh, point of analysis and maybe come back to it on a later show. But that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, I'm your host, Bob, uh, Bob Bixby. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 